Tonight we're continuing in our study of the book of Revelation. And uh, chapter 11. Without a doubt, we are launching into the most difficult chapter in the book of Revelation. I doubt that we'll finish this tonight. I mean, we will try. We could, but I don't know if you'd be happy with me if we, uh, if we did. So we'll, we'll go until uh, kind of about the right time, and, and uh, if we don't have it finished up, then we'll just continue next week with it. The measuring of the temple and the two witnesses. Let me take the time just to read the first 19 verses, and then uh, you'll see why this is quite a passage to work through. Revelation 11, verse 1. Do you have the text in your notes? Wow, okay. John continues with these visions that he's seeing. Then I was giving a measuring rod, like a staff. And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations. And they will trample the holy city for 42 months, just off the side That's where some people get the idea of a mid-tribulation rapture. I think it's unfounded, but they see those numbers and you just, you want to do something with them. Three, verse three. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses. They will prophesy, again, 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. So here's these two witnesses. But then, in this vision, they aren't like people. These are the two olive trees. And the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. So are these witnesses individual human beings? Or do they represent something else? We don't know yet. Verse 5. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. So they're certainly not ordinary people in this vision. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. So there's prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Verse 7. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit, we'll get to that, will make war on them, conquer them, kill them. Their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. And, of course, he wasn't crucified in either Sodom or Egypt. It's a great chapter. Nine. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them. So they're glad to see them gone. Make merry, exchange presents like Christmas. Because these two prophets had been been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. And then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. Some people see the rapture there too. They see it all over the place. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. 
And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, a third woe is soon to come. And then the seventh angel. Remember, we're still at that. I'll talk about it. The seventh angel blew his trumpet. Seals, trumpets, bowls, remember? That's the most important thing in the whole book. Seals, trumpets, bowls, each one right up to the end. The seventh angel blew his trumpet. We would expect then, if my theory is true, that this, after the seventh trumpet, it should be the end. And here's what you read. The seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Does that sound like the end? The 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is, who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. The time for the dead to be judged. For the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and the saints, those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened. The ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightnings, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, heavy hail. That, my friends, is one tough passage of scripture. We need to go back just a wee bit in our study and pick up the flow so you get a running start here. We've been lining up and comparing the last two Sunday nights, taking the idea of John's vision, this seventh trumpet about to sound. And so what we did is we looked at the teaching of Jesus in the Olivet Discourse and saw the trumpet and the way it plays into it. And then we went into Paul's teaching in 1 Thessalonians 4, 2 Thessalonians 2, and saw in both those cases how the second coming is tied to this sounding of a trumpet. Whatever that means, there's the trumpet there mentioned again. The days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, Revelation 10, 7. And so we're looking at some of the key events coming up to the end of the age. And I ask that you try to remember that Each of these series of sevens leads up to and includes the second coming and the end of the age, the seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bulls, and how they pile up on each other. The seventh seal contains the seven trumpets. The seventh trumpet contains the seven bulls. And so the wrath of God uh, comes dramatically, cataclysmically, not for the whole tribulation, but right at the end, suddenly, the church is either removed or spared right at that final end time moment. So we finished studying the sounding of the sixth trumpet in Revelation chapter 9. And in spite of all the trial of these terrible events, the chapter, chapter 9, it closes with the stubborn-hearted response of the enemies of God. It's in Revelation 9, 20 and 21, where it says, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up the worshiping of demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, 
which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. And, and this is my answer to people who come up to me and say, Pastor Don, if, if the church isn't raptured at the beginning of the tribulation, that's what everybody used to sort of believe, then if, if everyone's going to be here and see these signs of the coming of the end of the age, then everyone will just have a chance to repent at the last minute. So people are just going to live like the devil until they see all these things unfold, and then they'll just get in at the last minute. And my response is, Nothing would make God happier. My understanding is nothing would make God happier than to have absolutely everyone repent of their wickedness and come to him at the last minute. God doesn't seem as begrudging at saving everyone as the church is. But the important point is this. When you read it, John sees that this is not going to happen. We're given this powerful description of of the blinding and the binding effects of sin as it's cherished over time. These people see all these things happening. They know it's God's judgment coming at the very, very end of the tribulation. And they don't repent. Only fools think they can give up sin at will doesn't work that way only fools think they can continue in sin for as long as they want and then just at the right time swing over to the Lord's side later on it never works that way it never has it never will the lesson there is whatever God is dealing with my heart about whatever he's dealing with your heart about you repent now or you're not likely to repent at all so now After the sixth trumpet, there's this break in the revelation. It shouldn't surprise us because we found exactly the same thing between the sixth and the seventh seals, where you had that sealing of the 144,000. There's this pause in the action. And you see exactly the same thing as the seventh trumpet is about to sound. So, So in Revelation 10 and 11, John describes visions that are, that, are, that are sort of like a picture in picture. In chapter 10, there's this huge, strong angel coming down out of heaven with a little book. And the angel commands John to eat the book. And we looked at this a bit. The book was first sweet in John's mouth, and then it was bitter in his stomach. So there's this wonderful, sweet flavor to the gospel of grace and promise in Jesus Christ. And regardless of the trials of life, we do win in the end. But before that comes this trial and suffering. Many will be martyred for their faith. Sweet in the mouth, bitter in the stomach. That's that's what's being pictured there. It's a precious thing to receive Christ, but don't think there won't be opposition to it. There will be increasingly. We see that starting even now in today's culture. And so chapter 10 ends with John being encouraged and braced. Be faithful to your prophetic calling. And then then the angel says, but you've, you've got more news to deliver. 
You see that in chapter 10, verses 10 and 11. He says, I, I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth when I had eaten it. My stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. And then we come to chapter 11. It's, it's really the most challenging chapter in the entire book of Revelation. Rarely does it get dealt with in church settings. And it needs to be approached with humility. The content of chapter 11 centers around two visions. Here's what we know for sure. I think, I think, they are really one in theme and nature. First, there's this measuring of the temple of God. That's in, we read it, 11, 1 and 2. A measuring line. Measuring the temple of God. And then there's 3 to 14, this ministry of the, the two witnesses. So that's what we're going to try and look at tonight. First, the measuring of the temple. It's in 1 and 2. I was giving a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. That's the important part. It's given over to the nations. They will trample the holy city for 42 months. Now, there are, if you read books on Revelation, there are four different ways that people interpret the book. This passage in particular, but the book in general. I, I hesitated. I thought, do you put this in the notes? It, but I think you need to know it. And I think if you have just a basic understanding of it, it'll help you to know where people are coming from when they talk about the book of Revelation. There's, there are different names for these, but these are quite common, these names. The historical interpretation. This interpretation holds that most of the events in Revelation, particularly chapter 11... The visions aren't looking forward to the future. They're looking backward to the past. History, historical interpretation. This would be Brian Zahn, Bruxy Cavey. A, a, lot of, a lot of very popular writers would hold the idea that, that um, what's being dealt with here, when John writes this book of Revelation, there was no temple in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem and the temple had been leveled to the ground some decades earlier by Rome. John was looking back rather than forward to the destruction of Jerusalem by Roman armies as predicted by the Old Testament prophets. The problem with that interpretation is, is um, many of the prophesied details never came true. I mean, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, but the inner sanctuary, the holy place, was never protected or preserved. The whole thing was just trampled to the ground. The PAOC, most of our pastors, if you go back just a generation or two, the interpretation they would hold of the book of Revelation and passages like this was called the dispensational interpretation. Until recently, this has been the most popular. Uh, all the Left Behind novels by Tim LaHaye. They come right here. This teaches that, that 
this passage in Revelation 11, it's, it's going to find a literal fulfillment in the future. By that I mean that the temple will actually be rebuilt according to the measurements found in um, Ezekiel 40 to the end of the book of Ezekiel. And it will be once again on Mount Zion. And this will lead to a struggle between the Jews who will once again be offering Jewish worship in the temple, sacrifices and all. And there will be conflict with Antichrist. The church, of course, in this scheme is already raptured and in heaven it has nothing to do with us. As you maybe guessed, I don't hold to that view. Um, first, because I don't see any mention of a secret rapture of the church, which dispensationalism absolutely requires. And second, because a literal rebuilt temple, at least according to the specs of Ezekiel, would never fit on Mount Zion. The temple would be bigger than Mount Zion itself. So whatever the Old Testament prophets were predicting, it simply can't be a literal temple the size and measurements of the book of Ezekiel. I'll talk about that more in a minute because I think what I just said is troubling to some people because they think I'm saying God has no future work for the Jews, and that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the temple can't be rebuilt exactly according to those specs in Jerusalem. It simply doesn't work. And I don't think the New Testament requires that. I want to show you why in just a minute. So that's the second. The third way of interpreting is, it's an old name, and I don't like the name, is called the allegorical interpretation. And this view says there's nothing, there's nothing about Israel specifically in Revelation 11 at all. That when John sees the temple and the people of God, what he's seeing is the church, the true Israel, the true descendants. Paul would say the true descendants of Abraham. So there's no special future work geographically. That's important, what I just said. I'm not saying spiritual. I'm saying geographically with the Jewish people in the plan of of God. The problem I have with this view is that it's hard to make it fit with other key passages in the New Testament. Let me tell you the part I agree with. I'm not saying you have to agree. I'm just saying I agree. I do agree that the church is the true spiritual Israel. It's said too many times in the New Testament to ignore. I do agree that we are the people of God as defined by the New Testament. And I do strongly disagree with the dispensational interpretation of prophecy that sees the Jewish people coming to God through the Old Testament sacrificial system back in their temple in Palestine after the church is raptured. I don't believe that. Well, Pastor Don, why don't... Let me just pause for a minute. And this is why we're not going to finish tonight. Pastor Don, Ezekiel 40 to the end of the book, Isaiah, what what do you do with these prophetic passages that speak of a rebuilt temple in the last days? That's a fair question. What, What do you do with passages like that? Let me, I want to tell you how 
I handle passages like that. Again, um, you don't have to agree with this to, to get to heaven. When you get to heaven, you'll see that I was right. You have to, my, my basic uh, rule, my basic rule for interpreting tricky things like this is you start with the New Testament, not with the Old. In other words, you start with the end of the story and go back. Start with the fulfilled revelation and go back. You don't start with the unfulfilled and try and interpret the new in the light of the old. Did I, did I make that clear? You start with the new and work your way back to the old. So what, what gives me the right to say that I don't believe there's going to be a rebuilt temple where the Dome of the Rock stands on, Mount, on the mountain and uh, the Jewish people restored there and worshiping there in temple worship like they did in the Old Covenant. What gives me the right? When Ezekiel talks about it, Isaiah talks about it, a lot of the Old Testament prophets talk about it. This isn't in your notes. I'm, I'm winging it here. If you have a Bible, you, or your iPhone, or whatever you're doing, if you were to look up Acts chapter 15, you would see James. Now, they're trying to sort out. This is the Jerusalem Council. And they've got some real issues, because there are Jews coming into the church, and they bring all their old Jewish beliefs and baggage with them we can't imagine what that was like for the very first generation to have this massive transition and so they've got to sort all this stuff out and so the leaders get together in Jerusalem it's in Acts chapter 15 let me just read some of these verses James is going to get up and in verses 11 through 18 James is going to quote Amos, the prophet Amos, chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, predominantly. In my Bible, I have little, maybe you do too, maybe you have little paragraph headings that kind of give you a little topic of what the text is going to be about. And if you go to Amos 9 in my Bible and read these verses, here's what it says. There's a little bold print kind of title for the paragraph, and it says, the rebuilding of the temple in the last days. Okay, that's what it says. Here's James at the Jerusalem Council. And he gets up and he speaks. And he says, verse 11, But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Jews, Gentiles, that's the we, they. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. When they had finished speaking, James, this is the Apostle James, he gets up, and he says, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets... Plural. He's only going to quote one of them. But he says, the prophets agree, just as it is written. Now, these are the words from Amos. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent, the tabernacle of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, 
and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes things known from old. So here's what James does. James takes this passage, clearly, this passage in Amos, that if you just read Amos, you would say, it's a passage about the rebuilding of a temple. In Palestine. In the last days. Only James gets up, and he says, Jews and Gentiles, the new people of God. And James, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, you know what this is? This is the rebuilding of the house of David, right here. You would never get that impression just reading Amos. Take a passage Pentecostals are famous for. Acts chapter 2. And then the explanation comes. This is that spoken by the prophet Joel. Have you ever gone to Joel? Joel is talking about God pouring out his spirit on, on Israel in the last days. This great restoration of his people. Peter gets up and says, no, no. Right now, God's pouring out his spirit on people from all nations. You know what that is? It's the fulfillment, not partial fulfillment. He says, this is what Joel was talking about. What I'm saying is, I think there's strong, I gave a couple examples. There are more. There's strong New Testament evidence that what the church does is it takes all those prophecies about a structure being built in Palestine, and you'll find repeatedly that the apostles, anointed by the Spirit of God, they say, the church is the fulfillment of those things. So, all I'm saying is, I think there's good scriptural reason for looking at it that way. If you don't, that's fine. Nothing hinges. But get this. When I say I don't believe there's going to be a physical structure in Palestine. There was a temple. There was a rebuilt temple. There's not going to be a third. That's my view. And I think the New Testament insists on that view. That's why when you read Matthew through Revelation, you won't find a mention, not a single mention of the land as being part of the inheritance for the Jews. You see it in the Old Testament. I'm I'm not arguing that. I'm saying read the whole New Testament, go to any concordance you want, there's not one reference. Why is that? My view is, my view is, what, what Israel is in the Old Testament, Christ is the fulfillment of in the New Testament. I think that's what the Apostle Paul teaches. Pastor Don, are you saying there's nothing? Is God doing nothing with the Jewish people? And I'm not saying that. I'm not a replacement theologian. I am a fulfillment theologian. I believe what's going to happen is, Romans 11, I believe that what God is going to do is he's going to take ethnic Jews, all right? And Romans 11, they're going to be grafted in again. But it's going to be through faith, not through the old covenant. It's going to be through Jesus Christ. They're going to be There's going to be one people, but I believe there's going to be a massive turning to Christ among the Jewish people. Not a rebuilt temple in Palestine, but an incorporation of Jewish people into the body of Christ in numbers that we've never seen before. That's what I believe is is going to happen. 
That's the fourth view. That's my view, the end-time incorporation of many Jewish people into the church of Jesus Christ. I didn't take time to read Romans 11. I just, I can't, can't do it. Now, what does that have to do with Revelation chapter 11? I think that that view of... of uh, an ingathering of Jewish people into the body of Christ with Gentiles, the nations, one church. I think that best fits and lines up with, with what we see happening in Revelation 11. When, when you look carefully, the measuring isn't so much to determine the size, but it's the separating of two groups, one for protection, one for judgment. John is told to measure only the inner court. That's in verse 2. The inner court is to be treated separately, both from the outer court and, and the city itself. Do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, verse 2. For it is given over to the nations. They will trample the holy city for 42 months. I'll deal with that time thing in just a minute. Try and forget all the details. 42 months, 1260 days. I believe what we're seeing in this difficult passage is something parallel to what we saw in John's visions. I believe we're seeing division, separation, and protection, much like the numbering and the sealing of the 144,000. They're marked. They're protected. So just like in chapter 7, everything is stated in very Jewish terminology to show that God's going to bring many Jews into the church of Jesus Christ. There'll be a faithful remnant among the Jewish people. That's why the inner court, where the holy place was kept and maintained, it's measured off, protected, while the rest will come under judgment. So that inner court, the holy place, it's a picture of those who truly love and serve the Lord. Those who recognize, repent, turn to Jesus. The one who alone can open the scroll of the world's redemptive history. So, so these Jews that are being distinguished, marked off, they will come to see the, the fulfillment of what all the temple and the holy place and the holy of holies and the sacrifice. Like we've been studying in Hebrews, here's a group of Jews who are going to say, oh, that's what that's about. And they will come to Christ. So the emphasis in John's vision isn't a distinction between Israel and the church, but the inclusion of all repentant Israel within Jesus Christ in that end-time Jewish revival. Jews will come to Jesus. Zechariah 12.10 And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced. Who is that? That's Jesus. They shall mourn for him. That hasn't happened yet, not in mass. As one mourns for an only child, weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. It's a beautiful prophecy that many Jews will look at the pierced, crucified Son of God and they'll see something that they wouldn't have seen before. They will mourn over their sin. They will come to Christ. That, to me, that's what that measuring is all about. 
There's a second thing there, the two witnesses. It's 6.40. You want to go a bit more? Are you pooped? Are you still, are you cogent? You still with me? All right, we'll go a little farther. The ministry of these two witnesses starts in verse 3. I will grant authority to my two witnesses. They will prophesy 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees. I think this is an important verse. And the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours out from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have power to shut the sky that no rain should fall during the days of their prophesying. They have power over the waters to turn into blood so, and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Okay, so there's these two witnesses, whoever they are, we'll see in a minute. Well, hopefully. But they, they start out well. For the first part of this ministry, what you see in all of those pictures is authority, right? Power, dominion. They can, they can manifest the power of God. Verse 7. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and kill them. So, great victory, great power. They can shut up the sky. They can do this. They can do that. They prophesy. But, there's going to be opposition They'll be killed. Their dead bodies will lie in the street, verse 8, that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. So the same people that, that are against Christ will be against these witnesses in the, just the same way. Jesus said, they hated me, they're going to hate you. They persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. That's what you're seeing here. Verse 9, three and a half days. Some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their bodies, refuse to let them be placed in a tomb, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. People hated the message of these prophets. Thought they were nothing but a pain in the neck. Do you remember Jesus said to his followers? Jesus said to his followers, his disciples, he said, the days will come when those who kill you will think they're doing God a favor. That's what Jesus said. Eleven. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. They stood up on their feet. Great fear fell on all those who saw them. So there's power and authority. There's suffering, persecution. More power and authority comes after. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up in a, to heaven in a cloud. Their enemies watched them. Now, forgetting their identity. Notice how tightly these witnesses are tied to the preceding verses about the calling out of a faithful remnant of Jewish believers in verse 1 and 2. And, and John just blurts out their ministry without any pause or introduction at all. We're not... nothing. In other words, I think these witnesses fit into the plan of this Jewish remnant coming to Jesus in the last days. Notice that these witnesses are Christian witnesses. That's clear because in 11.8 it says they gave up their lives where their Lord was crucified. So these witnesses are tied to Jesus Christ. So it's not likely, as Tim LaHaye always said, that this is uh, Moses and Elijah. Those are the two witnesses that he had. I think that's 
fantasy, personally. Well then, who are these two witnesses? Maybe the toughest textual question in the New Testament. Ideas just abound. The blunt truth is John doesn't directly come out and say. Let me give you my, my thinking. I don't think these witnesses are meant to be seen just as two and only two actual individuals. I say that because of the symbolic description that comes immediately in verse 4. These are the two olive trees, the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. So, so here's what we can start with. These people are olive trees and their lampstands. And that pictorial language isn't, in my view, accidental. It comes from the prophet Zechariah. It's in Zechariah chapter 4, 1 to 3. And the angel who talked with me, now this is Zechariah, getting his revelation. The angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who is awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? So he's seen that he's another vision. He said, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on top of it, and, and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each side of the lamps that are on top of it. And, and, and there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and one on the left. And something in me goes, okay, lampstands, olive trees. This is also a prophetic picture given to Zechariah. You read a little farther in Zechariah, verses 11 through 14. And I, Zechariah, said to him, to the angel, he's like us, okay, what are these two olive trees on the right and left of the lampstand? And a second time, I answered and said to him, What are these two branches of the olive trees, which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured? Oil is for lampstands. And he said to me, do do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. And he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. And And they're identified. Later on in Zechariah, the two anointed ones are called and identified as Zerubbabel, it's the king, and Joshua, the high priest. Now, before you freak out with too much overload, try and stay with me just for a second longer. Remember, the vision John sees, it's this fluid picture with very little information. But if you stop and look at it, it, it's not a news story with words and description. It's not like reading Romans. First, there are these witnesses. Zechariah seems to talk about something similar. And he talks, Zechariah talks about a king, Zerubbabel, actual king, and a high priest, an actual high priest, Joshua. And they are described as golden lampstands, and then they're described as 
olive trees. And I think you have a very cryptic picture of the church rather than just two individuals in the book of Revelation. Look, look at how the church has been described in the book of Revelation. I have two passages. Are they in your notes, 1, 5, and 6? We read these earlier. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us, has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us, look, a kingdom of priests. So there's these two witnesses in Revelation 11. You go back and you see Zechariah talking about, it seems the same kind of prophecy talks about two lampstands and two olive trees and then Zechariah identifies them as a king and a priest and then you go back to the book of Revelation and you see that the church over and over again is is described as priests here's something else that I think is eye-opening look at Revelation 5 9 and 10 they sang a new song saying worthy are you to take the scroll open its seals for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, nation. You have made them a kingdom, made them a kingdom, and priests. Kingdom, priests. Kings, priests. Zerubbabel, Joshua, in the book of Zechariah. They're identified. Two witnesses, Revelation 11. Church is called both kings and priests all through the book of Revelation. So John's witnesses are a king and a priest. And all through Revelation, the redeemed are described as a collection of kings and priests. My view is there are two witnesses in John's picture, not because they are two individuals. This is important. Don't think of two individuals. Think of two roles. Okay? Priests, kings. So it's not like two people, Moses and Elijah. It's, it's the church, it's the body of Christ in its twofold role in the plan of God. Consider just one more important detail. Notice, notice the connection in John's vision of these witnesses as lampstands and the description we've already seen of the witness of the church earlier in this book. Look at Revelation 1, 19 and 20. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars, John asked about that, that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. Lampstands, think of Revelation 11. The seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So kingdom, priests, lampstands, all of those images come together in the book of Revelation over and over, not just once, as the church and the role that it will have in prophesying, proclaiming, speaking the truth of God that will bring many Jewish believers into the body of Christ. I believe that that's at least a very probable interpretation of, of Revelation chapter 11. 
And I will pause there because if I told you that we were only halfway through, you'd just shudder. We'll look at power and suffering in the life of the end time church. Could you absorb all that? That's a tough go, I admit, for a Sunday crowd. I think it's important to get a handle, though, on how people interpret some of those, some of those passages. 